Well, I want to start by asking a question. Who's heard of this phrase? Will the real Slim Shady please stand up? <laughs> Some of you might have heard that. <laughs> Some of you might have even, and I won't judge you, busted a few grooves to that. Yeah, I won't tell if you don't tell. <laughs> if you don't know, this phrase is from a song by a, a rapper whose alias is uh, Slim Shady. And in the song, he says, there are many uh, imposters pretending to be him. And so he's calling for the real Slim Shady to stand up and be distinguished from the, the sea of pretenders. And you know as well as I do, it's kind of like a, a bit of a, a cultural uh, reference, this phrase. That's, you know, you, you say it of someone who's pretending to be something that they're not. Or maybe you're critiquing this kind of copycat culture in which we live, where uniqueness and authenticity are rare virtues. You know, I never once imagined that I'd start a Christian sermon with a reference to a, a worldly rapper, but there you go. Well, there's a reason why I borrow that phrase. There's a reason for it, because I think that in our time now and throughout history, actually, there's, there's been a need and there is a need for true Christians to look around and to look at the caricatures of Jesus that people have created and critique that and nearly sort of cry out, will the real Jesus stand out, you know? Um, the series that we are working through, as you all know, is the fundamentals of the faith. So if you're a Christian, that means you know, you know that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to, is to regenerate our hearts first, uh, give understanding to our minds, unveil our eyes so that we can believe the doctrines that are taught in Scripture. Yeah? And, and, and when we live by Scripture, we're transformed by scripture because we get to know the true God for who he is and we worship him for who he is. Isn't that right? And if you look at the things that you believe in, your, your theology, the things that you believe in about God, you'll see that there are certain strands uh, that join together, yeah? hopefully consistently, but together that makes up what we would call your Christian worldview, the way that you see the world from a Christian perspective. And that worldview, of course, should be a biblical worldview. It should be based on what is taught in the Bible in order for that Christian title or being called a follower of Jesus to be applied to you. So when we come to the study of the person of Christ, which is our topic today, we should realize something very important. And that is, and our Lord said it himself, and we read that, uh, Rob read that verse from, uh, for us from 1 John, and he said, our Lord says, Many will come pretending to be him, yeah, deceiving many more. He says that in Matthew 24, 5. Now, we're not to believe these people or to be deceived by them. And this sort of thing, this copycat culture, or this, those imposters of Jesus, that's been going on since he walked the earth, and it continues to today. And, and it will stop only when he comes in glory, again, to judge and to rule. But in the meantime, though, in the meantime, we as Christians, we're supposed to recognize the voice of the true Jesus and to recognize just his voice. In John chapter 10, verse 27, he says, my sheep hear my voice and recognizes my voice. So to recognize his voice, then we've got to be familiar with him, who he is. We have to have, in other words, a biblical understanding of the person of Christ. The study of the person of Christ in, in, in theology, if you were to study theology, it's called 
Christology, this particular element, the person of Christ, Christology. In other words, everything a Christian ought to know about Jesus Christ ought to have been taught in the Bible consistently because that is God's word. And, and in it, he reveals himself to us without contradiction. And that's our standard. You and I know that. That's our standard. But, you know, sometimes it feels like we have to underscore that point two or three times with Byro, with highlighter, the fact that the Bible is our standard. Because that's precisely where people get things wrong sometimes. When they deviate from Scripture and maybe get their ideas of who Jesus is from outside of Scripture, mingling theories and stuff like that, you end up with cults, you end up with heresies, and, and you, result, you, you end up with a result that is nothing biblical. You can't call it biblical. So when it comes to the person of Christ, that's, that's really true. I mean, we have to be very vigilant with how we understand that. I mean, today, look, if we're here in Cardiff. If you walk the streets, you're not going to see people who are calling themselves Jesus Christ. That happens elsewhere, and it continues to happen. But you pick five people and ask them what, who Christ is, and you get 500 different answers, isn't it? You, you get tons of different answers. And most of the time, their responses will include the phrase somewhere like, you know, my Jesus, my Jesus this, my Jesus that. Now, for the true believer, there is a real sense, absolutely, that we can call Jesus my Savior, my, my Jesus, my Lord. Not because we own him or we've, we've fashioned him in our own image. No, but because we are owned by him, isn't it? Yeah, He's ours because we are his. He literally purchased us with the blood, his blood, when he died on the cross. Forgave us of our sins, instead giving us his righteousness. Uh, 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 and, and, he, and he forgave us of the penalty of sin, of course. Uh, he grants us eternal life. He gives us his righteousness so that we can be called righteous. That's what justification is all about, being declared righteous. And there are a lot of verses that tell us that we belong to Christ. But let's hear it from Jesus' own mouth. In John 10, 28, where he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He is ours and, he, and we are his. So for Christians, yes, we can say, my Jesus. But oftentimes, though, you and I need to understand that many people will say, my Jesus this, my Jesus that, maybe not referencing him or coming to it with the biblical understanding. What do I mean by that? Well, when you sort of unpack it, their statements, sometimes you might find that what they're really saying is, my Jesus equals the Jesus that works for me, you see. And that's a subtle but a very serious error. It's, it's very serious. Well, why is that serious? Because it's the one thing that will underwrite your ticket to damnation. Because if you've not understood who the biblical Jesus is, and you worship him alone, then you've missed the target. You've missed the target. Your object of worship is something or someone else. So it's so important. And God is so concerned with us having sound biblical doctrine because he takes false teachers and their deceptions extremely, extremely seriously because they mislead others. In the, the, the letter that Paul writes to Timothy, first uh, in 2 Timothy 3, 12 to 15, I won't, I won't, I'll be spitting out a lot of verses because this is topical, okay? We're not expounding one particular scripture. So if you're taking notes, just, you know, there's going to be a lot of scripture that I'll be referring to. But in, in 2 Timothy 3, 12 to 15, basically Paul is telling Timothy, this young man, he's saying, look, evil people and imposters, they will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 
And Timothy, he is supposed to continue, him and his church, continue in what he's learned and what he's firmly believed because he knows who he's, who's taught it to him, Paul himself. And Paul knows where he's got his information from, from Jesus himself. So he tells him that the sacred writings, scripture at the time, you know, the scripture that Timothy has, that is able to make him wise unto salvation. But on the other hand, Paul wrote another letter to the Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 11.4, he was rebuking them. He was saying, you guys, you're susceptible to, being, to believing anything that anyone says about Jesus. You're, you're falling left, right, and center to false Jesuses. You know, their problem is that they risked being like Eve, who fell to that deception from that master serpent, really. And so we, we ourselves, we want to continue like Timothy, in, 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 in grounded by Scripture and, and, and not sort of fall by the wayside and have different ideas as to who Jesus is and what the Bible has to say about him. So Jesus Christ is the central person of all human history. We know that. We believe that. The person of Christ is central to our faith, and we need to make sure who he is. You know, we can spend a whole lifetime talking about the humanity of Christ, his deity, and how that comes together in one person. Obviously, we don't have time, and we will never be able to do that, um, but we'll just scratch the surface on those points today, okay? So, if we were to take a little summary of who Jesus is, a biblical understanding of that, and just spit out one short sentence. We could say something like, Jesus Christ was and is fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. Now, a statement like this, it draws a boundary line around what we're saying, what Scripture teaches about Jesus. And boundaries are good because they're there so that we don't stray into heresy and false worship. In Romans 16, 17, Paul says to the Roman church, he says, he tells them to keep away from those that cause divisions, but those that put obstacles in their way that are contrary to the teaching that they have learned. A very similar message to what he told Timothy. And so with that in mind, we cannot talk about the person of Christ without dipping a little bit into church history. Okay, I know history is not necessarily everyone's favorite subject, but it's important to, to, to note this. Because what we believe today has been well-defined by, by, by people that have come before us. So you might have heard about church ecumenical councils. I'll, I'll explain this. These early church councils, meetings, basically, were made up of Christians throughout the whole Roman Empire. And it pulled in leaders f from, from the Roman Empire. They come together and then uh, uh, discuss theological matters. Hence the word ecumenical. It just means representing a number of different Christian churches. That's all it means. So as Christianity spread, the leaders who attended these councils also came from further abroad. Now when these councils met, right, what came out of their meetings were documents. Documents. They would write and publish creeds, confessions, definitions. Those are not the same things. A creed answers the question, in whom do you believe? And you would respond, I believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's, that's a creed. It's a pledge. A confession is a statement that answers the question, well, what do you believe about your faith? And so what do you believe about the birth of Christ? Well, I believe there's a virgin birth and so forth. Yeah? 
And a definition brings clarity to a specific topic because maybe there has been great misunderstanding about it, a definition. And when we think of these councils of the past, it's tempting to think that these, these were like, you know, church leaders, political leaders that met to arbitrarily, you know, willy-nilly decide what goes into Christianity and what doesn't. But I think, you know, we, we have to understand that if our God is sovereign, and he is, then he's involved in all events in human history. That means he would have presided, and he did preside, over all these meetings. So what came out of them, what was rejected, what was accepted, has God's approval. But the other thing is, these councils, when they met together, we have to ask the question, why did they even meet in the first place? They met to defend the Christian faith. That's the reason why they met. Heresies were so popular at the time, and they still are. And, and, and all these kind of weird ideas about who Jesus is was being spread around. And these councils, they often met to discuss the person of Christ. We can say it this way. The person of Christ is the most attacked aspect of, the, of Christianity. Why? Because the whole of our Christian faith hangs on the person of Christ. So that's where the devil will want to attack first. Most aggressive attacks have been on Christology. And so the church had to defend it fiercely. So we, we here today, we can be thankful for the meeting of these councils of old because they, they refuted heresies, they, they stated what was correct, what is not. And the other reason why we can be thankful is because, think about it, if you hear something, if you're reading scripture, you come across something, you note it in your mind, then you're talking to someone who talks or mentions something about what you've just read and you're a little bit dubious about it, of course, your first point should be to go to Scripture and see how Scripture has taught that thing. But sometimes you might struggle to connect the dots. And so that's where these creeds, these confessions, these definitions, they're helpful references. Because we can turn to them and see exactly how Christian fathers have believed this thing through the ages. Because guess what? What you and I believe about Christ, about aspects of Scripture, about theology, everything that we believe should not be in isolation from what has always been believed. We didn't make it up. It's always been there. So these act as a very useful sort of keeping us in check. They're not authoritative, but they keep us in check. They help to keep us in check. So I think I wanted just to mention a bit of church history because it's easy to dismiss that. And we need to understand that the person of Christ that we're discussing today the Christ that we worship, he has been under attack. His, you know, his nature has been under attack for a long time. Okay, it's not new. We ourselves, we have a statement. If you look on our website, we have a statement of faith. And very recently, a couple months ago, actually we made an adjustment. Guess what it was, which part it was to? It was to do with the person of Christ. We stated and added five, five words. We, we wrote the words, he is fully God and fully man. And you know, in stating that super clearly, what we're doing is we're drawing a really thick boundary line around this correct belief that is our belief. Well, why, why would we do that? Because we would never ever be able to be mistaken for the hundreds of cults out there. And a cult is basically an organization that claims Christianity but denies everything that they, that they should actually be believing, really. Yeah, and so 
that's really important. Now, maybe there might be another time to talk about councils and, and, and things like that, but I do want to just briefly mention one specific council, one particular meeting that happened in 451 AD. That's the, the, the Council of Chalcedon, or some people say Chalcedon. It's a C-H, C-H-A-L-D-E-O-N, um, C-E-D-O-N, Chalcedon, Chalcedon. I say Chalcedon, doesn't really matter. But what you need to know is that this is the fourth time in history that the church leaders had met. There had been three before that. And all the three that happened before that in Nicaea, in Constantinople, in Ephesus, all three were to discuss and refute heresies about the person of Christ. So how was Chalcedon different? Chalcedon was different because, A, well, it confirmed that all the things that had been refuted before and condemned, they still stand condemned. They're still lies. So it confirmed that. But it also came out with a definition, a definition that you and I, when we, we look at the person of Christ and study it, we think, yeah, I know that. But they clarified something. They clarified a very theological term called the hypostatic union. You don't need to remember that. All that is is they clarified what you and I today know, that Christ actually has two natures, one fully divine, one fully human, and they are brought together and coexist in harmony in the one person. They had to clarify that all the way back in 451. Well, why? Think about, let's think about the, 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 the heresies, these false teachings that were around at the time. This is what they condemned. They condemned uh, uh, a teaching by a guy called Arius who, who denied Christ being deity. Basically said, look, you know, he wasn't God. He was created. He's created as a perfect being, but, but he was created all the same. Where have we heard that before and today? JWs, right? Doesn't the, they resonate very closely with that kind of teaching. That was the heresy of Arianism, which was deemed and uh, 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 refuted as heretical. They also challenged a, a, another theory called Apollinarianism by a guy called Apollinarius. Now, he basically denied the other thing, the, the opposite. He said Jesus Christ was not fully human. He had a human body, but he didn't have a human soul. That's a problem because if he wasn't fully human, how does he represent us? How would that be? You see, all these heresies have something to do with the fact that you end up with a, either a powerless God that cannot save or, or, or a God that is unable to save you because they can't he can't represent you. So it's really important. They refuted another, another heresy that was very popular at the time called Nestorianism by a guy called Nestorius. He basically said, Christ has two natures, God, man, but they come together not in one person, in two different persons. It's like you have two different Christs roaming around the place. It's, it sounds crazy, but this is precisely what these councils had to defeat. And another one, the heresy of a guy called Eutychius. He basically said, Christ has one nature. And in that one nature, you've got his, his divinity that swallows up his humanity. It's like having a beaker of water and some ink. And you, you put a couple of drops of water in the ink. What do you end up with? You've got diluted ink. You've got undrinkable water. This kind of fusion is useless. And again, so that was knocked on the head as well. So they refuted all of that. And what did they formulate? That definition that I'm referring to. They clarified that concept, that hypostatic union. In other words, all of that is nonsense. What is true, what is taught in the Bible is that Christ is fully man and is fully 
uh, uh, God as well in one person. Without full deity, folks, we can't be forgiven. Without full humanity, we can't be represented. And our, we'd still be in our sins, basically. And with two different natures in two different persons, we have a schizophrenic, crazy Jesus. Do you see how important it is to draw boundaries? So I want to spend the rest of our time actually affirming what then does the Bible teach about the person of Christ. And so let's look at his humanity first. Now, check the date, and it's 25th of June, and we are exactly six months from Christmas Day to the day. Because I wanted to start with by saying this, that when you talk about the humanity of Christ, you have to start at the virgin birth. I know this is something we talk about at Christmas time, but, but it's so important that we, that we talk about it now. Because the virgin birth, this is where we see Jesus Christ coming into the world in human flesh. This is where we see that happening. The second person of the Trinity, who is pre-existent, he's divine. He takes on human nature and he comes in the form of a man. Scripture clearly states that Jesus was conceived in the womb of his, Mary, of my, of his mother Mary by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit without a human father. If you look at Matthew 1.23, I'll read it for you. Matthew 1.23, the angel of the Lord says to Mary, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God literally here with us in the flesh. Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 7, says, Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So we see that Jesus, he didn't cling on to his divinity like, oh, I'm not going down there. He came in the form of a servant king, born of man. He was humble and loving enough to come down to us and attach humanity to his already divine nature. He's attached humanity to it. That's where we see that happening, at the virgin birth. And from, from, from a do doctrine point of view, from teaching point of view, it, the virgin birth is, is, is important in several ways, but I'll just focus on, on just one of them. The virgin birth makes possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. I'll say it this way. This is how we can see that Christ does not have the sin that we have. We see it happening in the virgin birth. Well, why is this? Well, all humans, we know, have sin. Why is that? We've inherited this legal guilt, this corrupt moral nature from the first father. Adam, we've got it from there. Just like a surname, the male surname is what's passed on, at least traditionally. Theologically, sin is passed through the male line, Adam. That's why every human ha has sin. Whether you have a, a father that you can relate to or not, you were born because there is a father involved in that. Okay, And your spiritual father, your the historical father, Adam, that sin is passed through the line. Now, here's how we can see that Jesus skips that. Because, now, when we, when we think of sin, we do think about the things that people do. 
you're watching things that they shouldn't watch, uh, doing stuff that they shouldn't do. It's, it's usually action-related, uh, isn't it? But, but sin is deeper than that. It's, it's much deeper than that because what it is, it's a legal status. What does that mean? That means when you were born, you're like a card-carrying, passport-holding citizen of the kingdom of sin. That's your status. Regardless of whether you grew up to be a nice person or not, it has nothing to do with that. It's the status that you carry that is important here. And Jesus does not have that legal status because he does not come from Adam in the same way you and I do. His father was not a human father. His father was the Holy Spirit. And that has, that's the significance. That's why you and I have carry that legal status or we carried that legal status if you're a Christian because that's precisely what justification is. It's God saying, I'm taking that passport away from you. I'll give you a new passport. You are now a citizen of my kingdom. Okay? And so that's really important. That helps us to understand, hopefully, why the legal and moral corruption doesn't belong to Jesus Christ, although it belongs to everyone else. If you look in Luke chapter 135, I'll read it to you. This idea is, very, is right there. When the angel Gabriel, again, talking to Mary, says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That holy, we can skip it, but it's so important. It means separate from sin. He is sinless. Now, that provides a natural segue for us to perhaps talk about his deity now. But before I do that, I just want to mention a couple of footnotes about the limitations of Jesus' human nature. So he had to have a human nature for these things to happen to him. And we can hopefully connect with that. Well, number one, Jesus had a human body. A human body. When he journeyed far and was walking for a long time, well, what happened at the end of that? He was weary. Wouldn't we feel the same way? He was weary. John 4, 6. What was his response to a lack of food? What's your response to a lack of food? Hunger. Famished. He experienced that as well. If he was just divine, he wouldn't need to eat. He wouldn't need to feel hungry. That shows that he was also, he also had a human nature. When he was tired, he slept. When he was beaten, when he was carrying that cross to the top of the hill where he'd be crucified, he was beaten and weakened. He couldn't carry it anymore. They had to give the cross to Simon of Cyrene to carry it for him. Would you not have been in the same position? Your body weakened after beatings? You have to have a human nature for that to happen to you, to experience that. Jesus had a human mind, a human mind as well. He increased in wisdom going through a learning process that children do. Learn to talk, learn to walk, learn to read, learn to write. He, Luke uh, 2.52 says that. In his human nature, this is a controversial one, but it, in his human nature, Jesus didn't know when the Son would return. Mark chapter 13, 32, when he said, basically, he doesn't know when the Son would come again, the second coming. Because in his human nature, he wouldn't know that. In his divine nature, of course he does know that. He had a human soul and human emotions. This is where people like Nestorius and uh, uh, falls flat on their face with their theory, saying he didn't have a, a human soul. Just before his crucifixion, what did Jesus say? He said, now my soul is troubled. 
John 12, 27, the word used for that troubled is the same word used of people when people are anxious or, 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 or surprised by danger. Jesus had a human soul. His emotions also ranged, just like ours. In the story of the, uh, uh, not even the story, the account of the centurion who demonstrated such faith in Matthew 8 and 10, it says Jesus marveled. He marveled. He's like, wow, this guy has a lot of faith. He wouldn't need to marvel if he's, if he's in his divine nature. That shows that he has a human nature that functions just as we would. He wept with sorrow, with sorrow, when his friend Lazarus died. John 11, 20, 35. And the author of Hebrews tells us that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered in Hebrews 5, 8 to 9. Jesus grew toward maturity just like other children, like we mentioned. He was able to take on more and more responsibility. You know, the older he got, the more responsibility his parents could place on him in terms of obedience. And, and the more difficult the tasks his heavenly father could assign to him to carry out in the strength of his new human nature. Wayne Grudem calls that his moral backbone. Jesus' moral backbone was strengthened by more and more difficult exercise. And here's what's remarkable. In all of that, he did not sin, not once. Not once. Not in thought, not in deed. That complete absence of sin in Jesus' life, it, is, is, it truly is remarkable because the Bible teaches us that he faced severe temptations. We might think that, oh, yeah, no, he, he couldn't have faced temptation. You know, he's, he's God. He was also human. He had a human nature. Every temptation that you have faced, he's faced it. You don't think women threw themselves at him probably? Everything. Everything. He's faced it. So, so and he still did not sin. The fact that he could be tempted, that's the important thing. The fact that he could be tempted shows that he had a human nature. Because the Bible teaches us that God cannot be tempted with evil. James 1.13. So if he was only divine, only, then where would this come from? It wouldn't make sense. Okay? Right, let's move on to what the Bible teaches about the deity of Christ. We've looked at his humanity. Let's look at his deity. To affirm that Jesus Christ was fully human alone isn't enough, guys. We, we, we have to affirm that he was also fully God. That's the true biblical teaching. And so let's look at some, some claims in Scripture. The word God, which is theos, the word God, theos, it's used of Christ in the New Testament. Because normally in the New Testament, that word is reserved for use only for God the Father. But there are passages where it is used of Christ. And here's just one of them. One that we all know. John 1.1 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, Logos, and the Word was with God, Theo, and the Word was God. Now, G John is speaking of no other than Jesus, calling him the Word, Logos, and also God, that word Theos. But if you were doubting or you weren't you were a bit confused as to who he's actually talking about, you only need to read a little bit onwards. John 1, 14, where he clarifies exactly what he's talking about. He says, and the word, the logos, 
became flesh. That is Jesus. Became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of, only, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there's a scriptural uh, basis that he is God. The word God is used of Jesus Christ. There's also another word, Kyrios, which is Lord. Kyrios, that's used of Jesus Christ. Now, the word can be used in, in, in a couple of ways. It could be a polite way of saying sort of sir, you know, just, you know as we do in, in, in normal life, if you're being polite, you know, here you go, sir. It can be that. It could be master in the way that you have a servant-master relationship, you know, like, like a boss type of thing. But, but it is also used as God as well for Jesus Christ. In the time of Jesus, there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament that we have, that, that we have now, in that time, it was translated into Greek. Okay? And, and in the Old Testament, the word Yahweh appears. God reveals his, his name, Yahweh. Now, that word Yahweh, in the Greek translation, it was called, it, they used Kyrios for that, Lord or Jehovah. And that's carried over into the New Testament as well. And we see some examples where that word Lord, meaning not sir, not master, but meaning God, we see how that's being used of Jesus. And here's just one example. Several months before Jesus was born, when his mother was pregnant, Mary visits uh, uh, Elizabeth, her cousin. And Elizabeth, if you recall, she, she, she remarks, she says, Why is it granted me that the mother of my Lord, Kyrios, should come to me? In Luke 1.43. Jesus wasn't even born. So she can't be referring to him as sir, or you know, that master sort of boss title. It has to be that she's referring to the baby in Mary's womb as God himself. She's using, that word is used in the Old Testament sense, which gives it such amazing meaning. She's effectively saying, why is it granted me that the mother of the Lord God himself should come to me? It is really difficult to understand how that word can be used in any weaker sense than that of God. Now, in addition to the word Theos and Kyrios, you know, God and Lord. There are loads of other passages that strongly claim deity uh, for Christ. Not least, you'll be familiar with the I am statements that Jesus makes himself. You know, I am the Son of God, Matthew 27, 43. I am the way, the truth, the life, John 14, 6. I am the first and the last, the living one, alive forever, in Revelation 1, 17 to 18. But there's another very powerful one. I just want to talk, talk, talk about that for, for a minute. And um, this I am statement is, is so powerful. It, it drove the Jewish leaders to pick up stones and throw at him. They tried to kill him right there and then when he said this. And this is found in John chapter 8, verses 56 to um, 58. I'll just turn to that really quickly. John 8. 56 to 58 reads, and this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And 
so the Jews, the Jewish leaders said to him, you're not yet, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> Jesus was telling these Jewish leaders that before this chunk that we just read in verse 50, he was telling them that anyone that keeps his word would never see death. Anyone that keeps the word of the Christ that the, the Jewish leaders were looking at right there and then, anyone that keeps his word will never see death. And that confused them. And they challenged him saying, well, well Abraham died. The prophets died. You know, what they're saying is that these guys were old. You weren't even alive then. They died. How could they have known this so-called word of Christ? You're standing here. They're long gone. You see, that's, that's, that's the, the controversy in their minds. And, and so in verse 66, uh, 56, Jesus says, well, Abraham rejoices that he'd, seen, that he'd see Christ's day and indeed saw it and was glad. <clears throat> what Jesus was doing is he's using Abraham to support his claim that he is the Messiah that guarantees everlasting life to anyone who would believe in him, even Old Testament saints. And this is what confused the Jewish leaders that he was talking to. They were like, well, nah, you're not even 50 years old. You weren't there when Abraham was alive. And that's when that I am statement comes, isn't it? Before Abraham was, I am. Now, Jesus could have said, before Abraham was, I was. I, I take that. That still shows he, he's God. No problem with, with me, you know. But the fact that he didn't say that, he said, I am, is even more startling. Because what he's saying is, before something in the past happened, something in the present happened. It kind of that doesn't make sense. And it continues to happen. But that's the power of that. And, and you know what? The Jewish leaders, and this is why they got so irate when they heard that is because they know that Jesus is not playing games. He, they know that he's not talking nonsense or talking in riddles. They identify exactly what he means by that. He, they know. What, what they know is this. Jesus is claiming for himself the very words of God. When God revealed himself and made himself known to Moses back in Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, he said, I am who I am. Yahweh, that covenant God, uh, uh, covenant name of God. And Jesus is claiming that title for himself. And that's why these Jewish leaders were so reviled by it. If anyone says to you, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, that, that's absolutely wrong. You have at least this verse that you can point to and, and, and explain the meaning of it because Jesus was claiming God for himself by saying, I am. So let's take a few examples of evidence that Jesus actually possessed the attributes of deity. Okay? Last week, Rob taught us uh, and took us through God's attributes, omnipotence, omniscience, uh, omnipresence. I want to just, a couple of examples of how Jesus uh, demonstrated these things. So, omnipotence. In Matthew uh, chapter 8, verses 26 to 27, here's Jesus on a boat. And the interesting thing is he had been weary, and so he was asleep. That was his human nature. He was tired and was asleep. And there's this storm that's raging and assaulting the boat. The, the, the boat. And, and, and when he wakes up, he speaks to the storm, and it silences. He just speaks to it. 
and it silences at once. That was that now in his divine nature. Jesus literally created food. He multiplied five loaves, two fish, at least 5,000 men and then women and children. So that number could have been like 20,000, some people estimate. And they're starving. And Jesus got five loaves and two fish. And he, he just creates food more and more and more and more. This is the same God that spoke the world into existence. He's just creating it. So much so that there was enough surplus as well. Matthew, uh, that was in Matthew 14, 19. And, and, and what about any wine drinker's favorite? Jesus turned water into wine. John 2, 1 to 11. These are all signs of his power as God. And when the disciples saw these kind of things, saw him doing these things, they would say things like, what sort of man is this that even winds and the sea obey him? In Matthew 8, 27. What's, what this is, is the authority of Jesus himself, which is the authority of God himself. What about omniscience, that he knows everything? Really quickly, John 2, 25 says explicitly that Jesus knew all men and needed no one to bear witness of man. In other words, he, anything that can be known about the human condition, about the human, he knows, he knows. The disciples in John 16, 30 say, now we know that you know all things. You know, statements like this, you cannot say that of an Old Testament prophet. You cannot say that of an apostle. These are things that you can only say of God. Om omnipresence, that's how you say it. Omnipresence, omnipresence. Now, this isn't directly affirmed when Jesus was walking the earth before he died because he wasn't ever really in Galilee and Jerusalem at the same time, right? But we can say, like, look at it this, this way. And Jesus says, when he, was, when he was thinking about the time he would establish his church and talking to his disciples, he, um, he told them that, Wherever two or three gathered in my name, there I would be in the midst of them. Yeah? So wherever we meet, Jesus is here now. As he is at the same time any other church that is convening right now. He's there. So his omnipresence is affirmed in that sense. Jesus also possessed divine sovereignty. And this is, this is really important. The kind of authority that is possessed only by God. If he was just man, only human, this wouldn't make sense. Because every time, think about the Old Testament prophets. Every time that they gave a message to the people, what did they have to do? They have to prefix their message with things like, Thus says the Lord. Jesus didn't require that. He didn't have to prefix his statements with anything and when he did actually he said but I say to you or truly truly I say to you Matthew 5 is littered with those kind of statements he didn't need to qualify his statements to say that what I'm about to say is from God because he was God and he is God now more importantly he could forgive sins if he was just if he just had a human nature this would absolutely not make sense he could forgive sins. 
This is such a direct claim to be God. The fact that he could and he, he does and he did forgive sins. In, in Mark chapter 2, 5 onwards, you have the story of the, uh, the friends that bring their paralytic friend to Jesus. You recall the story where Jesus is in a house, he's teaching, and the house is bursting at its seams with everyone has just come there to, to, to hear him teach. And here are these four friends, and they've got a paralytic friend with them. And somehow they get themselves onto the roof. Imagine being the owner of that house. You're there, and hang on a sec, what are these guys breaking my roof for? They just bust the roof and deliver their friend through the roof to Jesus' feet. What does Jesus say? doesn't even heal him straight away. There's different healing he gives to him. He forgives his sins. He says, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes that were there, they were reviling him, mocking him for this, hating the words that he said. And then Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, he, he, he says to them, he makes this statement, the Son of Man, and by the way, we would need another study on the titles of Jesus because that Son of Man is just loaded. And it is the favorite title that Jesus used for himself. He, he hardly called himself the Son of God. He called himself m mostly the Son of Man. But anyways, he says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he tells the paralytic to get up and go home. So in that one story, you see omniscience. You know, he sees the faith of the friends that brought the, the paralytic guy. He sees their faith, the scriptures tell us. You, you, you see omnipotence. He heals him, tells him to get up and go, someone who's paralyzed. But you see that sovereignty. He forgives him of his sins. Something that no human can ever do. He possessed the, the, uh, um, the attribute of immortality. He says to the Jews, destroy this temple. In other words, this body, my body. And what do you say after that? In three days, I will raise it up again. John 2, 29. Now, Jesus did truly die a physical death. And we have to insist on that. Yeah. And he rose again. However, there are many scriptures in the New Testament that tell us that God the Father is the one that is active in raising Christ from the dead. But this particular verse where he says, I will raise up the body, my body, he's saying that he himself is active in his own resurrection. How can a human can ever claim that? He has to be God to be able to say that. If, he is, if Christ isn't God, I don't know what to make of that verse. And what about worship? We mentioned worship earlier on. We are to worship Jesus, and uh, this in itself is very clear evidence of his deity, the fact that we are to worship him, to be counted worthy to be worship, of, of worship. That's something that's true of no creature, not even angels, but just of God. From the beginning of Jesus' life, you see examples of him being worshipped. Um, as soon as the magi, you know, the wise men, when they laid the, uh, their eyes on the infant Jesus Christ, what did they do? According to Matthew 2.11, they bowed down and worshipped him, this baby, and they're worshipping him. Another memorable example of Jesus accepting worship just was just after his resurrection. Uh, Matthew 28 tells the account, Mark 16, Luke 24. They all, they all tell this account where some of the women, they were on their way to tell the disciples after they'd seen that Jesus wasn't in the tomb. And on their way, 
to, to tell the disciples the news of his resurrection, they actually meet Christ, Jesus, on the way. And when they realize that it was him, what do they do? Matthew 28, 9. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Worshipped him. And we here today, you and I, we continue to offer worship to Jesus today. We offer ourselves uh, to him as a living sacrifice, according to Romans 12, 1 to 2. Jesus said, God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, John 4, 24. So we worship God in spirit and truth. How do we do that? Well, we do that by obedience to his commands. We do that in, by obedience. Worship is not only about bowing to Jesus and clasping his feet, throwing palms, uh, palm branches at his feet, singing and shouting about our love for him. That's all part of it. But it's not just that. It's also about knowing him. It's about communing with him, serving him, and trusting in him. And that comes from obedience to his word. Jesus himself says in John 14, 15, what does he say? He says, if you, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. So how do we wrap this up then? I'd say this. The real, right? The real one and true Jesus Christ, the biblical Jesus Christ, revealed to us by God himself, is one person. One person with two natures. Fully man, fully God. These natures, they coexist in what we mentioned before, that hypostatic union. In other words, they are distinct natures, but they come together in one person, not in two different people. There are things that one nature can do that the other can't. That's true. Like for example, one, one can be tempted by, by sin, or be tempted, but not sin. Do you see? Yeah? Forgiving of sins and knowing of the human condition, but at the same time, not knowing when the Son of Man will return. So they are distinct. This is what leads us to conclude that they have to be distinct, not fused or mashed up together in some funny way. So what one nature does, right, or what one nature can do, the other one might not necessarily be able to do. That said, though, what either nature does, it is the singular person that's doing it. It is still Christ, the one person that is doing it. Look, if I, if I type out a letter, like I was typing out my sermon for today, I, I won't say my fingers typed the letter, even though I know my toes were not involved in it. Yeah? I say I typed it, right? So it, it, it's, it's like that. Jesus doesn't say before Abraham was, my divine nature existed. He doesn't say that. He says before Abraham was, I the entirety of me, I was, I am, yeah? When he says, I am leaving the world, John 17, and then he also says in Matthew 28, I am with you always. We're not talking of two different persons conflicting with each other. There's no contradiction. It is the one person. This is that Chalcedon definition of hypostatic union. That's it in action. This is it. The coexistence of two natures in <clears throat> one person. This Jesus is our Savior. 
He's the only means by which any person in this world who believes in him as he is, placing their trust in him, the only chance they have for eternal salvation. There is simply no other way. This Jesus is the king who will come again to judge and to be marveled at by his people. And, and Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.14, he says, we have to be diligent, careful to be found by him when he comes in peace, to be found spotless, to be found blameless. Because when he comes again, it will be glorious for those that are in Christ. But it's going to be harrowing for the pretenders, the, the rejectors, the deceivers, those that are deceived. They are, according to Second Thessalonians chapter 1, 7-10, which us men have studied to death, really. <laughs> they are ones that do not know God. They do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, to finish, I want to take us back to Chalcedon, 451 AD. After that council wrestled with those Christological heresies, and they came up with the, and wrote the Chalcedonian definition. It's fairly brief, and I want to read it in its entirety. It's been translated here into modern English by uh, Dr. Donald Fairburn, of uh, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, so hopefully we can follow the words. I'll read it to you, and just sit where you are and just meditate on, on these words. It says, <clears throat> Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all unite in teaching that we should confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This same one is perfect in deity, and the same one is perfect in humanity. The same one is true God and true man, comprising a rational soul and a body. He is of the same essence as the Father, according to his deity. And the same one is of the same essence with us, according to his humanity like us in all things except sin. He was begotten before the ages from the Father, according to his deity. But in the last days, for us and our salvation, the same one was born of the Virgin Mary, the bearer of God, according to his humanity. He is the one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, and only begotten, who is made known in two natures, united, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction between the natures is not at all destroyed because of the union, no, but rather the property of each nature is preserved and concurs together into one person and subsistence. He is not separated or divided into two persons, but he is one and the same Son, the only begotten, God the Logos, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way the prophets spoke of him from the beginning, and Jesus himself instructed us. And the council of the fathers has handed the faith down to us.
That's the Chalcedonian definition, which today we believe, because it's taught in the Bible, they just clarified it so that connecting the dots for our little puny minds to understand. And I find great joy and pleasure in reading that and applying that to my own life, and I hope you do as well. Let me pray to close. Our Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you have done in Christ for us, Lord. We thank you that you are the eternal God and that Christ is eternal God and the Holy Spirit is eternal God. We thank you that Jesus Christ has a human nature, full, and is also fully divine. Because, Lord, we can then be represented by him and we can have our sins forgiven and be welcomed into your presence to dwell in the presence of God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, forever and ever. We thank you. And Lord, may what we have learned today stir, us our, stir our, our hearts, Lord, that way we may appreciate who Christ is even more, love him even more, serve him even more, be more obedient to him, Lord, and become more and more like him in as much as the Holy Spirit brings us to his likeness while we are here on earth, Lord, preparing us, Lord, for a time where we would be in your presence. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.